I meant to tell you this last Lent season that we just walked through when we do our 40-day fast about a story that was in Yahoo News in August. And there was a lady that was suing McDonald's last year because she was on a 40-day fast where she was fasting from red meats and she was fasting uh, chicken and stuff like this. And she sued McDonald's because she said their advertising caused her to break her fast. And so she's suing them on moral grounds for advertising during Lent. She saw the advertisement, and she pulled in. Now get this, she bought a quarter pound of hamburger, and she bought some chicken nuggets, and she consumed them. Now, I understand. If I, if I knew the lady, I would tell her, I understand, because during that 40-day period, like when a lot of times I fast meats and sweets during that time, I smell everything that has the vaguest smell about being fried, you know, and, and I understand, but there's no reason that you can sue, even on Morgan's, and, and by the way, I don't know if she's doing this just to get news uh, coverage. She only sued them for $14, the cost of her meal. And so um, suing would cost a whole lot more money than that. Well, tonight I want us to look at some right questions to ask ourselves. You know, are we trying to blame others for the mistakes we made? Are we, are we doing things just because it's a ritual and a form? Are we doing it with the right attitude and the right heart? Tonight's message will help us, I think, as we look carefully at the book of Zechariah, especially in chapter 7, it will help us to understand this. God is not trying to deprive us of good things. God is not trying to deprive us of the things that we enjoy in life or the good things that he has blessed us with in life. But when we do go through these times of fasting or prayer, we want to do them for the right reasons. Because if not, we'll have a hard heart. Now, since we started this book, two years have passed. So if you think I'm preaching slow through this book... Remind yourself, two years have already passed since Zechariah started his preaching. He's, there's been eight visions, and now they come from Bethel, which means the house of the Lord. There are some that come from Bethel, and they're coming to ask Zechariah a question. And just so you'll understand about the fast that they're going to talk about, they're going to ask Zechariah about, is there are four fasts that the children of Israel began doing after the um, the Exodus, after they were exiled to Babylon. The fast was when the siege, they fasted when the siege first began against Jerusalem. They fasted when uh, the, the city was finally conquered and Zedekiah tried to flee and he was captured and he and his sons were captured. They fasted then when the temp, for the month the temple was born and then they fasted because of their own uh, uh, assassination where they assassinated Gedaliah, he was, and you can read about him in 2 Kings 25 and also in the book of Jeremiah. You can read about that horrible story. So there were four fasts that they had begun doing. These were not fasts. Now listen, this is important. These were not fasts that God had commanded. When we do our 40-day fast, I make it clear to everybody every year, you don't have to do this. You know, this is not a command from the Lord. And I preached an entire series on why we fast. Generally, fasting is a response to uh, something that's broken our hearts, say like a death in the family. And, uh, and I just use that as an illustration because when, when my father died, I didn't feel like eating. 
course, if you're from the south, everybody brings food over. The, the house is just running over. Well, the last thing I wanted to do was eat. It's just a natural time to fast unto the Lord and express your grief. Sometimes after 9-11, we fasted. Uh, there was just that issue. There are times when I will fast for somebody that I'm praying for, and I'll just come before the Lord, not because God has commanded it and not because I think I'm going to Force God's hand. That's not the reason for fasting. It's just an expression of my heart. And so there's nothing wrong with that, but you've got to remember, God only commanded one day of fasting, and that was the national day of prayer and fasting that we remember, or the Jews still celebrate on Yom Kippur. So they, there were these four fasts, and they're coming with a question. And so let's take a look. It's a short chapter. Let's take a look at this chapter, chapter 7. On December 7th of the fourth year of King Darius's reign, another message came to Zechariah from the Lord. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech along with their attendants to seek the Lord's favor. They were to ask this question of the prophets and the priests at the temple of the Lord of Heaven's armies. Should we continue to mourn and fast each summer on the anniversary of the temple's destruction as we have done for so many years? Let me read that question again. Should we continue to mourn and fast each summer on the anniversary of the temple's destruction as we have done for so many years? That little phrase is very important right there. Now, remember, they're building the temple. The temple is not yet complete, so they've come there to the temple. Well, the Lord of heaven's army sent me, Zechariah, this message in reply. Say to all your people and your priests during the 70 years of exile, when you fasted and mourned in the summer and in early autumn... Was it really for me that you were fasting? And even now in your holy festivals, aren't you eating and drinking just to please yourselves? Isn't this the same message the Lord proclaimed through the prophets in years past when Jerusalem and the towns of Judah were bustling with people and the Negev and the foothills of Judah were well populated? In other words, when you were prospering, isn't this the same message I sent to you about why we worship or why you fast, why you pray, why you feast. Remember, God didn't command these fasts, but God had commanded a number of feasts that they were to enjoy. And they were to feast before the Lord and enjoy the presence of the Lord. Then this is the message that came to Zechariah from the Lord. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Judge fairly, show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor, and do not scheme against each other. Your ancestors refused to listen to this message. They stubbornly turned away and put their fingers and their ears to keep from hearing, and they made their hearts as hard as stone, so they could not hear the instructions or the messages that the Lord of Heaven's armies had sent to them by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. That is why the Lord of Heaven's armies was so angry with them. Since they refused to listen when I called to them, I would not listen when they called to me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. As with a whirlwind, I scattered them among the distant nations where they lived as strangers. And they became so desolate that no one, the, their land became so desolate that no one even traveled through it. They turned their pleasant land into a desert. Underline that last sentence there. They turned their pleasant land into a desert. I think verse 3 is the th verse that we should really look at tonight with line with, do we ask ourselves the right questions when it comes to worship? Should we continue to mourn and fast as we've done for so many years? There's almost a complaint there. We've done this for so many years, 
And it's this sense that God then brings to them what's really bothering them. Judah hasn't prospered yet. The Negev hasn't prospered yet. Jerusalem is not. Remember, we've looked at all the promises that are going to come as we went through these visions so far. But that hasn't happened yet. And so it basically what they're saying, look, we've fasted and we've mourned and we've wept, but God still hasn't done what we wanted him to do. And sometimes people will come to me and they'll say to me, Pastor, I, I gave this, I did this, and God still hasn't done. I'll go back to the story that I told a few weeks ago about the little girl who won $2 in children's church. And then she gave it all in the offering. And she told the children's church teacher, when was asked, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to give it all. She said, well, I gave it all because now maybe God will give me what I really want. You know, we think we can manipulate God, but we can't. Psalms 137, you're familiar with that passage. It talks about how they hung their harps in Babylon on the willow trees, and they sat on the banks and they wept. They, they did. They grieved. They sobbed. But all of that sobbing was about the fact, not for God, but the fact that they were not prospering. And I think that's important. What is it we hunger for? What is the focus of our prayer life? What is it that we're seeking the Lord for? If we find ourselves seeking God more for His blessings than because He is the blessing, then there's a question we really need to ask ourselves. There are people that I know through the years of pastoring and ministry, they've been fastidious about church attendance, they've been fastidious about giving, they've been fastidious about so many things, but they're dry. They've told me before their Bible reading has become stale. I want to deal with that tonight because that's exactly the question that God is asking them in response to their question. In other words, if we ask ourselves good questions, we won't drift. If we'll ask ourselves good questions and answer them honestly and prayerfully, then we can avoid the danger of drifting. Paul worried about this, and if Paul was concerned about this, I need to be concerned about this. He talked about the fact unless he became a spiritual castaway. So it's important to ask ourselves... Now, most of you know that I really am a great admirer of Francis Schaeffer, who went to be with the Lord a number of years ago. But let me read you an excerpt from one of his books. It's from a short book of sermons called No Little People. And in this, this little short book of sermons that he wrote, there's a part of his complete works now that you can get. He wrote these words. This being the case, it is obvious there's no mechanical solution to true spirituality or the true Christian life. Anything that has the mark of mechanical upon it is a mistake. It's not possible to say, read so many chapters of the Bible every day and you will have this much sanctification. It's not possible to say, pray so long every day and you will have a certain amount of sanctification. It's not possible to add the two together and to say, you'll have this big piece of sanctification. This is purely mechanical solution and denies the whole Christian position. For the fact is that the Christian life, true spirituality, can never have a mechanical solution. The real solution is being cast up into the moment-by-moment -moment communion, personal communion with God Himself, and letting Christ's truth flow through you with the agency of the Holy Spirit. Is that quote not in your outlines? I see you're looking at me. I, I want you to have that quote. So if you'll or go online, check the app, it should be on the app. Because that is such a powerful quote. That is such a it's, a, it's what we say all the time. It's not a matter of ritual. 
It's that moment of day by day walking with the Lord. What did, what did Francis Schaeffer meant when he said, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, through the will, through the act of the Holy Spirit. If I say I have agency, then I am implying that I have the ability to do something about something. So let's say I have agency over my calendar. I have the ability to plan my calendar. I have agency over my friends. I have the ability to choose my friends. When he talks about the agency of the Holy Spirit, this is what God wants. Look at me just a second, not your notes. God wants fellowship with you. God wants communion with you. During tax season, sometimes I describe myself as a income tax widow because my wife is a tax preparer. With all she's got going on at church and everything else, I miss her. I can't wait for I am so glad you got your taxes done. And I've got my wife back because I miss her. I miss that communion of just being able to sit down in the evening and talk for a few minutes and catch up with one another. God looks for that moment-for-moment communion with you and me as well. Well, number one, my worship must come from my heart. My worship must come from my heart. We never want to be guilty of just keeping man-made rules. There's nothing wrong with good guidelines and good principles, but we never want to replace the Bible's teaching with our man-made rules. You see, we can make legalistic rules and tolerate the sins of pride, tolerate the sins of gossip, tolerate the sins of bitterness, tolerate the sins of greed in our heart, for instance, but yet we can keep all of our legalistic rules that we have that have to do with our outward behavior and not our inward heart. And that's what God is getting at here. The Bible says this in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5, say to all your people and your priests, during those 70 years of exile, when you fasted and mourned in the summer and early autumn, was it really for me that you were fasting? And even now in your holy festivals, aren't you eating and drinking just to please yourselves? Again, God did not command these fast. But what God did command was that they celebrate, they have these feast days in his presence. But he also commanded, he said, I want you to love those who need your help. Remember, he also said something similar in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Now, God was the one that set up that Old Testament sacrificial system. So you might read that and say, God doesn't want your, your sacrifices. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your sacrifices without your heart being right doesn't do any good. So the call is that our hearts need to line up with our actions. So Here's what I do periodically with my own self. I ask myself periodically, do I truly love the Lord? And that's a healthy question for every Christian to answer. Because we're so prone to use that word love so quickly. Somebody told me today, I love my new car. You know, I didn't correct them on that, but I'm sure they don't love that car the way they love their wife or the way they love their children or maybe the way they love the Lord. But love is kind of been cheapened today. And so when we talk about what love is, we ask ourselves when we're reading our Bibles, when we're praying, do I really, really love the Lord? Second thing is, I need to beware of becoming spiritually hardened. As a pastor who's studying every single day, praying for other people, doing all that I do, I have to ask myself, am I getting spiritual hardening of the arteries, you know? I have to ask myself, are there any sins that I should confess to the Lord each and every single day? 
The Bible says in Zechariah 7, 12, they made their hearts as hard as stone. Now stop right there. If that could happen to them, that could happen to you and me. They made their hearts as hard as stone. Now their hearts got so hard, look at what the Lord also said. So they could not hear the instructions or the messages of the Lord of heaven's armies had sent them by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Do you remember Sunday morning when I was talking about, you know, failure, the fear of failure, God's promises for us if we fail? And I said, it's really easy for some of you to listen this morning and to be going, this is for my neighbor, this is for my neighbor, you know? It's for somebody else. But if you've buried your talent, you've dug a hole and you buried your talent, you're not using your time, your talent, your treasure, your story, your testimony for God. Because you're fearing God, you're fearing failure. Did you know procrastination is actually a sign of a fear of failure? Did you know perfectionism is a sign of a fear of failure? And God has promises for us. And what happens is, we can do what that servant did in Jesus' parable. We can bury it and think we've done everything right because we come to God and say, hey, I, I didn't lose anything. Here it is. And give it back. And you never heard what the Lord wanted you to do. And that was to use and to celebrate what God had given you. I bet at times you've been like me. You've bought a stock that when you bought that stock, you thought it was going to do real good. And it lost everything you put in it. And I bet you've bought a stock before that you thought, you know what, I'm just going to put, and it's done so much better than you've ever thought it would ever do. Okay? Here's my point. You know, we don't know how God is going to use what we give to him. But the servant would have never been criticized for having lost if he tried. And you can't manipulate God, so why not live boldly? You know, why not live wisely? Well, the, God goes on to say then, this is why he was so angry with them. So I ask myself this question. When I read the Bible, am I listening to God's word? Am I listening to God's word? A few weeks ago, we had Aaron Halavin here. Aaron is our new district superintendent. For the first time in my life, I am older than my district superintendent. <laughs> For the first time in my life. Yesterday, I served on the missions committee for, for Michigan, and I have for a number of years, and we were interviewing these young missionary candidates, and, and I'm looking around the room, and all of the guys that are older than me were not there. And I thought, for the first time in my life, I'm the oldest guy in the room when it comes to being at the district office. So I'm sending them all messages. They can't be absent anymore because I don't want to be the old guy in the room. But I'm sitting there, and I, and I have this moment because I'm so proud of Aaron. I'm so proud of, of, of the leader he is and what I've seen God doing in his life. And I thought to myself, you know what? I am happy to submit to his leadership. I'm happy to follow his leadership in my life. I am so thankful for what God has done in his life. Well, I got home. My wife told me, she says, you'll never guess who the new district superintendent is in Georgia. The, the old superintendent has resigned, and, uh, and I said, no, she says, it's John Doherty. And I go, John? She goes, yes. I remember when John was a single kid coming to camp, and now he's the district superintendent of Georgia. Man, I'm going to be calling myself the Ancient of Days here if I don't move on with this thing. But my point is this. I'm so thankful for another generation that God is raising up. 
The question I have to ask myself, though, if am I in submission to spiritual authority? Am I in submission to those that God has put in leadership in my life? The Bible says in Zechariah chapter 7 and 11, they wouldn't listen. They stubbornly, look at this, and I'm using a Jewish translation of the Old Testament here. They stubbornly turned their shoulder away so they wouldn't have to hear it. What it means is they stopped up their ears. But the reason I want you to see how the Hebrew literally says it is they turned their shoulder away. Have you ever, when you had children, or if when you had a student in class, and you needed to get their attention, or you wanted them to behave, and you reached out and you touched their shoulder, they pulled away like this. You ever had that happen? That happened with my grandson the other day. I was trying to get him to behave, and I touched him, and he pulled away like that. In other words, sometimes God touches us during a service or during the day. Maybe it's to talk with someone. Maybe it's to help someone. Maybe it's to give. Maybe it's to touch some habit in our life, and then all of a sudden we pull that shoulder away. It's like putting our fingers in our ears and saying we're not going to do it. Now, the reason this is important is because when my motive is love, then my worship is pure. I wrote this several times trying to get this right. When my motive is love for God, when my motive is love for others, then my worship becomes pure. But if my motives are to check the boxes, then my worship will never be acceptable to the Lord. Because God is not impressed with how many chapters I read, how many minutes I spend in prayer. He's not even impressed if I... And I do this, you know, just because it's a way for me to stay accountable to myself. The little marks where I talk to people about Jesus during the day that I make. But God's not impressed with that if my motive is not love for Him and love for others. What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others the way you love yourself. I mean, if you, listen, if you love God and you love other people, you don't have to worry about the rest of the law. You'll fulfill it. If you love God and you love other people, your worship will be fulfilling. This is what the Lord of armies, Heaven's army says. Judge fairly. Show mercy, kindness. Do not oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. And do not scheme against each other. So I need to ask myself, how is my worship affecting those around me that God is obviously caring about? So... Monday, Becky and I were having a conversation, and I'd been reading the Bible early that morning, and I, we were getting ready to go our separate ways, and, and I said, you know, I just had a thought while I was reading my Bible. I said, it's never really popped out at me like this, and I shared this in another meeting that I spoke at this week, and that is, Becky, it seems like what God is saying to us in the Word is the way Woodland, the way you and I, the way people who love God should live should be in such a way that the love of Christ is so boldly expressed through us in word and deed that people's eyes are turned towards Jesus, that Jesus is what really matters. They see Jesus in us. So let's talk about this before I, I move on for just a moment. Because if I don't love God right, it's hard to love my neighbor right. Now, I will never love God perfectly. Let me say that. I will never love God perfectly. That's the reason I need to do that examination. That's the reason that even though it sounds very religious, we, mastered it, we fasted and we mourned 
Should we continue doing that? We've been doing it all these years. Nothing's really happening. You know, maybe you've asked yourself that question before. So ask yourself this question as well. You might want to write this out to the side. When your Bible reading becomes stale, when your morning devotions become stale, when your prayer life becomes stale, when you become weary, ask yourself why. Why? Every once in a while, I have to shake up my Bible reading. I read my Bible through each year, but every once in a while, I just have to go, you know what? I need to stop and I maybe need to just read this book or really study this chapter for a while. Every once in a while, I pray through my five P's every day. You know, you know those five P's by now, or you should for after 23 years, you know. I pray as a person, I pray as a partner, as Becky's husband, I pray as a parent and a grandparent, I pray as a pastor, and I pray as a pilgrim. So I cover missions, I, everything right down to missions. But sometimes I just say, Lord, I need to lay this five P's aside. And I may pray through the Lord's Prayer. I may just simply say, God, I just need to worship today. You don't want to get stuck in a rut. If you were to go back home before we sold the farm, you could see the rut where the cows walked every single day the same way to the same place. Every, all this green grass, they graze on it, but they wore out the rut the same way. We don't want to get stuck in a rut. So if I do that, then I have to ask myself, who can I serve? Who can I serve? Now, this makes me ask myself this question then. Do I know the issues? Can I name the issues? In the last few years, we've heard a lot of issues on the news. We've heard about economic discrimination. But did you know there's also economic discrimination against the rich as well as against the poor? So we have to ask ourselves, really good questions when we're looking and working for justice and when we're working for fairness. You know, we don't want to discriminate against anybody, okay? We don't want to destroy what's produced America financially or what's produced the Western world financially. We need to ask ourselves the questions, you know, capitalism can't run unrestrained, but socialism and communism is not the answer. And so we need to ask ourselves, what are the real issues that are at hand. For instance, one of the men when I first moved here gave me a book about the history of unions here in Detroit. I, I, I just wept as I read that book because a man could get, get his hand cut off uh, carving meat at one of the meat plants in Chicago or here in Detroit, and he was just cast aside like he was no more good, and his family was destitute, or somebody could get killed working on the railroad, and they'd be cast aside. Well, there needed to be a good civilization and a good economy says, look, people are our greatest asset. In a meeting last week that I was in, I talked about children being an asset and not a liability. And the reason that came up was, was upon an economic presentation that was being made. Children are our greatest asset. They're not a liability to us. They cost us a lot. They can make you want to pull your hair out sometime. But then I have to remind myself, I cost my parents a lot, and I'm sure I made them want to pull out their hair sometime. And all of you that are looking so holy at me tonight, I bet you did the same thing as well. There's academic discrimination. There's age discrimination. Do you know there's no such thing in the Bible as an age gap? Do you know there's no such thing as a generation gap? I mean, when I told you what I did tonight, I thought about this. When I told you about Aaron Halavin, our new district superintendent. The church was started by young people. The oldest disciple was Peter. And he was probably only a year or two older than Jesus. So 
the fact is that all of these older people were following Jesus and they were submitting to the leadership of these young apostles that still haven't really been tried yet. And yet God brought in a great number of them. He brought wise people in. Our young folk and our old folk need one another. There's sexual discrimination between males and females. There's even political and racial discrimination. It's interesting to me, if we don't know the issues, and if we don't know our Bibles, we don't know how to speak in an intelligent way to the issues. You can have a biblically prescribed safe border and yet treat immigrants with respect. Now think about that. You can have, according to the Scripture, you can have safe, governed borders that are protected, but you can also see that we are to treat immigrants with respect and decency and not the way some people have talked about them. Every single country, every single country matters to God. They're not an outhouse country, okay? So we need to always remember that. Do you know the names of people who are hurt by the issues? That'll change your prayer life. That'll change your devotional life. Do you take time to pray about the issue scripturally and find out what the Bible says? Do you stand for the sacredness of human life, that all life, whether it's aged life or whether it's the unborn life, that all life matters? So many children that are being aborted, their lives terminated when they never have an opportunity to even have a voice for their own life and so many aged people legally being put to death. And then walk humbly before God and others. If we don't, then we're in danger of doing what Zechariah or what the Lord said to Zechariah about the people. They turn their pleasant land into a desert. They turn their pleasant land into a desert. Look at me. In this chapter, God said, because they wouldn't listen to me, I stopped listening to their prayers. Now, that was a message for Israel. That's a message for the church tonight. But I think it's a message for every country as well. We're quick to sing, God bless us, but we're never quick to listen to what God says. So what I'd like to do is close this message tonight, not on list, not on legalism, not on fast that may be good. Our 40-day fast that we do is a good thing to do. But we don't live by fast. We don't live by lists. We don't live by rituals. We live on the promises of God. We live on the promises of God. Look at this next quote by Yaroslav Pelagin, who is a theologian, sometimes not easy to read, but a brilliant mind. Listen to this. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Now, don't look, you know, again, this should be in the app if it's not in your outline. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. There are certain traditions that live. Traditionalism, though, is the dead faith of the living, where we just go through the traditions without understanding why we have those traditions. Tradition lives in conversation with the past while remembering where we are where and when we are, and that it is we who have to decide. Tradition is a conversation with the past. Remember who we are, where we are, and when we are living and deciding then what to do. 
So I can point to traditional fast in the church and in Israel to why we do a 40-day fast or why I fast when, uh, at times when God hasn't commanded it. Traditionalism supposes, now listen, traditionalism supposes that nothing should ever be done for the first time so that all is needed to solve any problem is to arrive at a supposedly unanimous testimony of this homogenized tradition. In other words, to homogenize, you bring everything together and you just come up with whatever is workable. And if it seems like this is a good plan, you ignore the faith that's been handed down to you and you just, you make it practical, okay? In other words, you look for seven easy steps for revival. There aren't seven easy steps for revival. Revival revi requires repentance. Revival requires humility. Revival requires waiting upon the Lord. There are no seven easy steps to produce that. So again, let me look at this verse. Since they refused to listen when I called to them, I would not listen when they called to me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Let me use something that we started during COVID that I think is a good illustration of this. We began taking communion every Sunday. Prior to COVID, we took communion once a month. For some time before COVID had started, I had even talked with the staff and some others. I said, you know, I just, the Lord's really been dealing with me. And I said, as I read the Bible, the church took communion when they gathered. They just always took communion. It was just a part of what they did. And it talks about so much in the book of Acts of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And then I, I said these words, but I'm afraid it would become just traditional and people would go through the motions real quick. Well, during COVID, one day I was praying <clears throat> and I was reading my Bible and these words stood out to me because some people partake unworthily. They are sick and some have even died when they partake of the Lord's communion. And I sat there and I just began writing on a yellow legal pad and thinking about this. If taking unworthily can cause illness, if taking unworthily without discerning that, you know, this is what God gave us as, as a reminder of the body and the blood of our Lord can cause even death. Here we are facing this thing and the, the Holy Spirit's been dealing with me. Why couldn't taking it worthily be the life-giving sustenance that God meant for it to be. There's no magic in that wafer. There's no magic in that cup. But to take it and worship and take it humbly. So when Pastor Corey leads us to pray, Lord, search our hearts if there's anything there that needs to be confessed. That's one of the healthiest things you can do. When you have a pure heart, you're going to have good mental health. When you have a pure heart, you're going to have good emotional health. When you have a pure heart, your physical health is going to be better. Your heart will be at peace. Even your bones will be healthier because the Bible says that the bitterness will rot our bones away from us. But it can become just something we do every Sunday morning if we don't come with the right heart and the right spirit about it. But so can singing songs. So can preaching a message. I've always used what D.L. Moody said in my prayer life. It's just been something very motivational for me. D.L. Moody says, I pray myself on fire, and then I go try and set other people on fire. You know, it's all a matter of your heart. So, in Psalms 119 and verse 116, the Bible says, Lord, sustain me as you promised that I may live. Do not let my hope be crushed. 
God has promised to sustain you. Do you remember what Jesus said? I'm talking about communion now. Look at me. Listen carefully online. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Now, he's not talking about cannibalism. He was pointing forward to the communion. There is a promise that you and I have, if we appropriate those promises that God gives to us, there will be life, be blessing, and be strength to all that's around us. So, we're going to look at the next part of Zechariah's message next week because chapter 8 is a part of this. And aren't you glad I didn't try to preach it tonight too? Because there's so much good there that we've got to pull out because you're going to see God's desire when people's hearts are right that even the children and the old people will be playing in the streets together. Can you say amen? So let me pray with you tonight, and then we're going to have a brief Q&A here this evening. I'm so glad you joined us. I hope you enjoyed tonight. I, I hope you'll remember just a little story. You know, McDonald's wasn't responsible for that woman breaking her fast. You and I are responsible for the decisions we make, but it also means we're responsible when we worship, not to come in mindlessly and not to come in just as ritual we really do expect to meet with the Lord. And I'm so glad you joined us tonight. And I can't read the comments, but I see a lot of people there that are watching. Thanks for joining us this evening. Let me pray for you and pray for those that are here tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you that we serve a living God. Lord, as the Easter song reminds us, we serve a risen Savior. And I thank you, Jesus, that as we study your word, as we pray, and as we come together to receive communion, that your holy presence is with us and I ask you that we will always come with clean hands and pure hearts, trusting in the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. Good night.